بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على سيد المرسلين وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد as in this way of tasawuf is a way that has been developed through the experience of many mashayikh of the past and that's why you have the different different silsilas have developed over the centuries they developed in a particular way by the mashayikh by the scholars who had concern for spirituality had concern for taking people to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now what happens with a within a silsila is that Sheikh Abdul Qadir Jilani rahimahullah he may have told his students his muridin his aspirants that okay do this this is what i'd like you to do this is what i found to be beneficial so that ayah that ayah must be one of those things that he must have told her so those are the basic things that they've said that if you do a wird of if you repeat over and over again you'll be benefiting from it personally the way i look at it is that the wird that we're given to do every day the amount of muraqabah the amount of dhikr the amount of reading etc that's just the basis of just keeping strong inside and keeping your battery recharged at the end of the day we take our phone and we go and put it on charge now what happens is that sometimes mashallah the phone uh, the, the the charge remains all day and even at the end of the day you still have a quarter of a battery left sometimes half a battery left depending on how much you've used depending on how much you've used if you've used your data internet wifi made calls a lot you've used it a lot then it would be expected that your battery will deplete accordingly and if there was a very silent day when you had your phone fully charged in the morning and you hardly used it nobody called you you didn't have time to check your uh, emails on your phone or anything else for that matter and it, you, you just kind of looked at it once uh, you know every few hours or something like that you may have taken a small call you'll find that by the end of the day you have 40% battery left or 50% or even 60% battery left so at the end of the day just doing these basic adhkar for the day your quran reading your istighfar your salawat on the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam the the dhikr etc then that is purely just to get that basic battery charge now what we'll understand is that if we use ourselves more what i mean by using ourselves more in comparison to using the phone as a battery you know the, uh, to deplete the battery is that what's going to happen with us using ourselves more is that on certain days we're going to definitely need much more to do that because our uh, fortification and strength and iman and the nur that's come from our dhikr etc that has come in is going to deplete faster because it's uh, you know we've been confronted with more haram and more wrong and more problems you may have had an argument with somebody you may have to have confronted something of that nature it may be something haram that just came in front of us it may be something like that that we've had to deal with some kind of fitna issue some dispute with somebody an argument or something like that so at the end of the day you're going to feel much more wrecked so if we know that that's going to happen then we're going to have to do a lot more to 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 strengthen that but basically these are the basic things that the ulama have told because these things are found in the hadith in general but they're not they like the hadith is not going to say okay do these six things a day it's 
the hadith, uh, the hadith of Prophet Sallallahu told us to do many, 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 many things, which obviously is very difficult for most of us to do every one of those things and do all the adhkar that are mentioned in Kitabul Adhkar. There's you know hundreds of adhkar mentioned in all of these dua books. Very difficult for us to do that. So the Mushayikh have said that okay, these are the basics that you must do. Now what happens is that somebody later on, after five or six Mashayikh, you know, grand students of the original Shaykh, you know, who may have codified the way or developed this particular order and system. Uh, they will decide that, okay, we think adding this is a bit more important now or taking this out or not, you know, that's there as well, but you don't have to focus on that too much. There's this which I found to be even more effective. So this is kind of like a renewal or you can say a kind of a, a slightly change in the, in the system. The, the roots and the causes are the same. You know, the, the barakat uh, that they have received are from the same mashaykh because that's what they benefited from. But then they have a right to adapt as they want to. Now, there's obviously going to be various schools in that regard. There's going to be various different um, perspectives in that regard. What's going to happen is that uh, some ulama are going to be very Puritan. They're going to say, no, we want to stay with the usul of the Naqshbandis. Because that's who we are, we want to stay with exactly what Sheikh Mujaddid Al-Fithani said. Now, if you really want to be a Puritan, you probably have to even go back to Sheikh Bahauddin Naqshban's time. Right? Like, exactly what he said. But obviously, Sheikh Mujaddid Al-Fithani, he did, he made a major development uh, within that. Now, what's very interesting is that if you look at the uh, subcontinent specifically, where I would say most of us sitting here today are from, right? Uh, the Asian subcontinent. Islam and faith there you can say can be the, the advent of the faith the introduction of the faith and Islam into the subcontinent can be considered a feat of the Chishtis because Sheikh Mu'inuddin Chishti is probably responsible for the majority of or a large chunk at least of the Muslims of the subcontinent because what you had is you had uh, you, you had a uh, uh, Muhammad bin Qasim etc who came from uh, uh, who, who came uh, from the Middle East uh, from the uh, you know from the Khilafat uh, to to India uh, to the subcontinent they came to Sindh so you that's why from about 150 years Hijri about a 50 150 Hijri you have a Sindhi scholar right you have a Sindhi scholar Abu Ma'shara Sindhi who's a hadith narrator as well so you have actually somebody represented from the uh, Indian subcontinent, even among Hadith scholarship, uh, because the Sindhis they got their faith much earlier than the the rest of the subcontinent. That's why you have a lot of these Sindhi scholars who have studied in Makkah, Mukarramah, Medina, Munawwara. You know they've gone out because they had no place to study in the subcontinent. Later on, then you know Islam spreads throughout. The Chishtis, you could say, have been uh, the Mashaykh of, Chish, uh, of the Chisht have been considered to be those who started the faith. In, in the subcontinent, who brought it because when Sheikh Mu'inuddin Chishti came from uh, Baghdad, uh, originally he was from Chish, but then he stayed in Baghdad for a while, and then uh, it was in, uh, he came to the subcontinent, and just thousands of people uh, became Muslim at his hands. That's, that's the power of the heart. When a, a person develops the heart uh, to, to that degree, connected with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, then it's not going to be uh, devoid of benefit. Uh, that's that's very powerful. So then Islam spread throughout, but then came a time when Akbar became the, the ruler of India. And initially he was a very decent person, very knowledgeable, a very 
re religious and so on as well and he was on the right track but then for some reason he had this strange idea of bringing everybody together so you know india has always been predominantly hindu huge amounts of people there huge amounts of people we say predominantly meaning a huge amount now india is predominantly hindu muslims are a small percentage despite the fact that they're so large in number but they're a small percentage but then at that time you had all these other countries together as well i would still say probably hindus were more i would still say hindus were always probably more because it's just a huge mass of people uh, so he decided to bring everything together so he came up with this concept of the the deen ilahi the divine deen or something like that which he tried to amalgamate the main features of both now that was one of those times where you had it was an attack on islam if that had it, once the ruler starts to dictate something and then uses persecution etc to impose it then you need people like imam ahmed ibn hanbal to stand up to it otherwise it would have been changed that's why they say uh, the ulama mentioned that there are two people who have uh, who have you can say defended the faith at the most cru crucial points in islam and had they not been there then what would have happened is uh, the deen would have been changed and these two people they say is abu bakr siddiq radiyallahu anhu and the other one is imam ahmed ibn hanbal uh, the difference being they say then but abu bakr siddiq radiyallahu anhu had a whole army with him including khalid ibn walid and umar ibn al-khattab radiyallahu anhu but when he came to uh, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, he literally was single, uh, was, was a single man who did this because many of the other ulama just kind of hid their faith or just to stay away from persecution or from being killed because a number of people were killed in that time under the Inquisition under Ma'amun al-Rashid. But he got flogged for it. But after that, uh, once he made that stand, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala brought about the downfall of the Mu'tazila and Ma'amun al-Rashid died and then Mu'tasim billah died and and so on and so forth so similar to that but you can say more confined because you see Baghdad would have had ramifications around the world because that was Darul Khilafah that's where Imam Ahmed was that would have had ramifications likewise um, if the apostasy uh, the, the people who had started to personalize their faith and uh, also uh, began to apostate some people apostatized others didn't apostatize but they lost their faith uh, or they try to personalize their faith by saying that, okay, we'll accept this, that, and the other, but we won't accept zakat. So that's why Abu Bakr Siddiq went against him. Again, that would have had massive ramifications if they couldn't do anything in, front, in the face of it or they didn't put up a major challenge. Well, when it comes to the subcontinent, obviously, it was on a smaller scale. It was restricted to that area, uh, but still, it was a major thing. So in that time, that's when Sheikh Ahmed Sarhindi uh, stood up to that, and he was imprisoned. And what they noticed in the prison is that all the major criminals, because he was put with the worst criminals, within a few years, those major criminals become awliya, right? And that's noticed. And he was, Mujid al-Fithani was the, was the teacher of uh, either Jahangir or his son Aurangzeb, Aurangzeb, rahmatullahi, or Shah Jahan, one of those two. Uh, because it's Jahangir, then Shah Jahan, and then it's Aurangzeb, Alamgir, Rahmatullahi Alayhi. So obviously he had his benefit on Aurangzeb, Alamgir, Rahmatullahi as well. But then after that, uh, he took the, the Naqshbandi way and the teachings that had come down from the Mashaykh 
and he kind of revived them, explained certain ambiguous aspects and so on. So the subcontinent has uh, a lot to pay uh, to, uh, you know, ha has, a, has a lot of respect for these two tariqs, the Chishti and the Naqshbandi because of that. And the Qadri Silsila within the subcontinent is probably, uh, you could say, a precursor even to the uh, the the, the Naqshbandis and the Chishtis, obviously, uh, because uh, the Qadri is the oldest Silsila in a formal in a formal setting, and then it, it it spread around in other in other areas, and it had its benefit as well, uh, probably earlier on. But Sheikh Ma'inun the Chishtis way was just more effective in the sense of the way how many people converted uh, and so on and today probably the biggest tariqa in the subcontinent is, is the chishti tariqa though you have many many uh, you know pockets of naqshbandis you don't hear as much of suhrawardis anymore but that used to be in, in bengal uh, and multan there were some major mashaykh of the suhrawardis uh, at that time even though the suhrawardi came through the qadris at the end of the day so it's kind of interesting that these are reformed so now what you have what you have is you have the Chishti way. Now today, if you look at the Chishti Mashaikh, uh, there'll be different. Uh, Chishti Mashaikh will be focused on uh, emphasis on different things. For example, if you look at Hazrat Mawlana Ashraf Ali Thani, rahmatullahi and the people who are linked to him today, his Khulafa, etc., what you will find is that they're, they're, they're very strict on, on many things. They're very strict on many things. And it's more about uh, your akhlaq need to be very particular. Because Mawlana Shavitani on social etiquette was very, very strong. You know, that would be very important for him. And of course, you know, your, your adhkar of the day, etc. But then beyond that, it was more about just being very strict on your mu'amalat with people and just being very good with your time and so on and so forth. Then uh, then you have Hazrat uh, Sheikh Zakaria, rahmatullahi alayhi. Uh, you have th these are the major you know manifestations today you know you had many other great mashaykh like sheikh abdul qadir uh, raipuri and uh, Mona rashid ahmed gango he was a precursor to a precursor to all of them and and so on and so forth uh, so for example in our chishti tariqa we have hazrat mona yusuf mutala sahib then his his sheikh is mona sheikh zakaria rahmatullahi then his sheikh is mona khalil ahmed saharanpuri rahmatullahi and his sheikh is mona rashid ahmed gangohi and his Sheikh is Haji Imdadullah Muhajir, uh, Muhajir Makki. Now Sheikh uh, Haji Imdadullah Muhajir Makki was very interesting. He was a Naqshbandi first. And, a sheikh, and then after that he became a Chishti. Right? And uh, so now he was not an Alim, but he, you can say, is the father of much of the Deobandi Tasawuf in the subcontinent. In fact, he, uh, maybe even some of the Barilwi Tasawuf because they even look up to him. Right? Uh, so, Haji Imdadullah was actually from Tanabawan, where Mawlana Shari Tanwi is from. So his room is there, very small room, very interesting. It's a very small room. It's probably like this room you could probably get about two, three, four, five seven of those rooms in here they're literally like a just like a cubicle it's just like a cubicle and i'm just wondering how they would just sit there and do their dhikr in that heat subhanallah of course they were more used to it than us so they had that much more of a tolerance factor but it's ajib and then what you had is so all of these great scholars of the time when this is forming they're going to Haji Imdadullah. Mawlana Rashid Ahmed Gangohi was a very interesting 
was very interesting because he went from Gungo, which is from Tanabon probably about today, I don't know, 45 minutes to an hour's drive, right? because the roads aren't so great. So it would have taken a few hours to go on some animal or some other rickshaw or whatever it was that they used to use. He'd gone to Tanabon to debate with somebody. He'd gone to Tanabon to debate with somebody. He thought on the way that before I go to the debate, let me just go and visit this great sheikh that's there, Haji Imdadullah. So he went to visit him and they just clicked, as we'd say today. And Haji Imdadullah said, why are you going there for? There's no need for that. So he, he decided, okay, fine, I'm not going there. And then he stayed for 40 days, ended up staying for 40 days. It's amazing if you read his biography. It's, he said, after a few days, I would say, um, I'll go tomorrow. Because the whole idea was to go there for a few hours, a day or something, and then go back home. But then I ended up staying there a few days, and then I'd say, okay, I'll go back tomorrow. And on some days, the sheikh would say, you know, don't go today, go tomorrow. So every time we decide to go, I'd then say, I'll go tomorrow instead of today. I'll stay another day. Or the sheikh was like that 40 days or 43 days, taqriban. And... Then eventually, when he did, you know, when it, it did, they did decide that he was going to leave. Uh, he received this khilafat as well, you know, and then he went back, and then Subhanallah. So, at the same time, you had Maulana Qasim Nanotwi, the founder, they say, of the Darul Deoband. Although he was actually part of uh, one person in five, in a group of five, though he's the most famous of them, that came into the shura. In fact, they say that there were others who actually decided to do that and Mawlana Qasim Nanuti was brought in and then they decided to uh, establish this madrasa. So what then happened is Mawlana Qasim Nanuti was also linked to Hajim Dadullah. So you have those two. Then you have so you have Mawlana Rashid Mahangangohi, Mawlana Qasim Nanuti. Then you have Mawlana Shavadi Thanwi. His sheikh was also Hajim Dadullah. He was in the same city anyway. But then uh, eventually Hajim Dadullah had gone to Makkah Mukarramah and moved there uh, because of the British. Haji Imdadullah was quite an amazing individual. I read in one of uh, their biographies that once he was in, he had to he had to leave Tanabon, etc., because Brit British was were after him. Our government at that time right, uh, was after him, so they eventually he went into he went to somebody's farm that he knew and he hid in a barn so the person relates this entire incident and it's quite amazing it relates this entire incident that he said the inspectors came because they f they had uh, were told that he'd be here somewhere so i said no he's not in the house or anything like that and then he said can he be in those barns he says you know he, he kind of uh, kind of been uh, he, he said he didn't tell a full untruth, but at the same time, you know, he had to do tawri, as they say, which is to kind of try to change the direction of the, uh, or the gist of the what he was saying. So, for some reason, the person went to that particular barn he was in. And this person thought, now that's it, because if you were caught to be harboring a criminal, you would be, you know, you would have a major problem yourself. And this person was actually linked to the government. So he was actually part of the civil service so that would have made it even a bigger problem anyway so he's doing all the dua he's doing and then the person goes up to the barn he opens the door 
and there's nothing there. There's nothing there. And this person knew that he was there. You know, the, the host knew he was there. And the door opened, he thinks that's it. And he opens the door and there's nothing there. Right? So, Mawlana had just disappeared. Now, that's not going to happen all the time. This is just the karamat that happens sometimes. If they want to be caught, because a lot of them were caught and sent to Mawlana Hussein Ahmed Badni, Mufti Mahmoud al-Hassan, Sheikh Mahmoud al-Hassan, Mawlana Mahmoud al-Hassan, uh, they were sent to Malta in the prison. So, this is just karama that happens at some times. Mawlana Qasim Nanotwi, he was such a carefree kind of individual that he was only like 40-something when he died. Very young. An amazing scholar. He was like, in terms of an intellectual, an absolute genius. So on one occasion, he was told to hide because they were after him. Mashallah, perfect background sound as well to them. Uh, so he was told to hide. And so finally, after they really pushed him, his, his followers, you know, his people who liked him, they said, look, you know, just hide. You don't want to be caught. And just... So then he went into hiding for three days. And then the fourth day, he's, they found him walking around again. What happened? He says, why are you outside for? They, they asked him. He said, well, we follow the sunnah of Rasulullah The Prophet he hid in the cave for three days. That's a sunnah. I can't hide for any longer than that. And on one occasion, it says that one of the inspectors or detectives or their men came to look for him and they literally came up to him now he was a very unassuming individual very he didn't look like a big Maulana at all just like a simple guy in fact at one time he kept very long hair and they had to really force him to cut it I mean his his uh, fellow ulama etc he was just into his deen and that's it he, he didn't really care about how he looked etc it's a very simple kind of looking person so the person came up to him thinking that he's just some kind of you know Bedouin from the you know from the villages said do you know this Malakasim Nanuti so what he did was now how'd you get out of that one he can't tell an untruth uh, although to save yourself from being killed you probably could but in this case he took a few steps like you know he took a few steps and then he said you know he was standing here a short while ago so the person said oh, okay he said he was standing here a short while ago he must be here around somewhere so then the person went and he, he disappeared right so that's obviously just tact of the mind tawfiq from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to say that. But the point is that today I asked uh, one of our sheikhs that come here that, you know, how do you define, you know, the tasawwuf? Because he is uh, one of my teachers, Mufti Tahir, who's my Mufti teacher in Saharanpur. He's a Khalifa of Mufti Mahmud al Hassan. Uh, not Mufti, not the Sheikh al Hind, Mahmud al Hassan, the earlier one, the later Mufti Mahmud al Hassan. Uh, Gangohi, who was uh, a Khalifa, the main Khalifa, the, the, the big Khalifa of Molna, uh, Sheikh Zakaria Rahmatullah So, he's come to England a few times, he passed away in South Africa, he's buried there. But, amazing individual, absolutely amazing individual, very quick-witted, very intelligent again. Uh, so he was between Deoband and Sahranpur. Sometimes he would he stayed for many years in Deoband, taught there. So many years he stayed in Sahranpur, he taught there. But he was a graduate of Deoband. Uh, so then I asked uh, Mufti Tahir Saab about it, and basically 
what you've got is different the sawuf uh, orders they focus on different things because there are many ways to get to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala one what we have to remember this is the main gist of what I'm saying is that the main thing is that everybody needs to do the basics so the basic means your fara'id and stay away from the haram that is the maqsad that is the objective that is the goal now how do you do that how do you make that easy how do you make sure that you're doing all your fara'id and you're making sure that you don't commit the haram and you're abstaining from the challenges of the world that is by the fortification of the heart and by subduing the nafs so that is the maqsad that's the objective and the methodology you use is to strengthen the heart and to subdue the nafs that's basically the objective and the methodology now how people achieve this is what's different in the tariqas otherwise all the tariqas their objective any valid tariqah and all tariqas will be valid except that you'll have certain individuals within each tariqa who would have uh, focused on a very less important thing and f- sometimes to the detriment of the most important thing that's how they become c- corrupt because there's no hierarchy there's no uh, you can say a college that gives or a certifying bodies and etc it's one sheikh gives it to the next the sheikh passed away that one of the khulafa became problematic uh, and now you know the others have complained about him but this guy's got a large following because he's very influential you know he uh, speaks very well he can convince people he's very deceptive etc etc so this is how things can become corrupt at the end of the day that's why the way to look for a sheikh is to make sure that he's somebody that others will also recommend and will also respect otherwise if it's just some isolated individual then that's a problem so now the objective is to reach Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala through abstinence from the haram uh, fulfilling of the obligations of the sharia and everything and uh, basically full uh, you know full acceptance of the sharia and full adherence to the sharia and the methodology is is to strengthen the heart by doing adhkar etc etc now what kind of adhkar are given to you to strengthen the heart what kind of ma'mulat do people do what kind of a regimen that is where they all differ so where some will focus on making you do great uh, strenuous exercises of staying away from you know the uh, going into etika for a month or staying out there somewhere or going and doing some strenuous khidma of someone or working hard or something like that or nowadays that's very difficult for example when we went to Tanabawan Molana uh, the the person was showing us around he showed us this by the grave of Molana Tanwi which wasn't a grave at that time it was just an orchard at that time uh, where he's buried now right uh, it's not in the Qabristan it's not in the Maqbara it's separate it's on on his own land that he was buried there for a reason there there's an old kind of building I said what is this building he said this is where some of the Murids of Maulana Shabri Thanwi would be sent, spent, sorry, sent, who, whose Islah could not be done in the main Khanqa. They were the tough ones. Right? The Islah wasn't done there, so they'd be sent here for 40 days, given a bit of food every day, and they stood told to do dhikr. You said that Qari Tayyib was sent here as well. Right? So, Maulana Qari Tayyib uh, he says about himself that when I went to Thanabawan to do Islah, I was told, uh, the Shaykh told me, Mawlana Shavadi Thanwi, he said that I want you to straighten the slippers. When people come for Salat, I want you to straighten the slippers. And so he said, that was very difficult for me. He's coming from Deoban. He's the Muhtamim, the principal of the biggest institution there. Uh, well revered, etc. So 
he said, I found it very difficult to do that. So now if you, if you, if you see in the Indian subcontinent, uh, people are poor. And there it must have been very poor. I remember when I went first to study, I had, I had these sandals, Teva sandals. And I must have got them fixed about four times in the year. Every time a strap would break or something, I would get it fixed. And they just like, uh, you know, do, get, get it sewn up. Crude, you know, sewing. It's not even like perfect and so on. So that, that's the way it was. And the cheap slippers and dirty, they've just come from the fields, etc. So he goes, I would do the good ones first. And I, would, I didn't touch the other ones. I couldn't bear myself to touch the other ones. So the sheikh saw that. And the next day he said that, no, now tomorrow I want you to do all the dirty ones. So he said, the next day when I went down begrudgingly to do that, all the kibber and all the arrogance from my heart went away. So th this is what the sheikhs make people do, right? But there's other ways as well that people have used just extra, extra shukr, dhikr, etc. So this is the different ways that the ulama, some say just focus on Rasulullah and just fulfill the sunnah as much as possible. And that's enough. And it is enough. Right? So all of these things are enough completely. It just depends on what they are. But you have to follow one because that helps the supervision aspect. Because without supervision, then again, you're left to your own, you're left to your own discipline. That's the difficulty. So when you're under somebody's supervision, then you have to do what they tell you to do. Right? And that's where the benefit comes. But this is the way, they, how they're all valid. That's what I'm trying to say. So one mustn't never think that I'm better than somebody else. At the end of the day, the maqsood is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah give us the tawfiq.